you know, the, the, the Dharma is a seed of culture. Mm-hmm. And it isn't just meditation. It involves, within it is the, the, the deep archetype of the possibility of enlightened human culture. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast, where we explore the art and science of meditation with teachers, authors, scientists, and more. My name is Morgan Dix, and today I'm thrilled to share with you my interview with Mahamudra meditation teacher, John Churchill. So John's study, practice, and research around meditation have been in the area of Buddhist non-dual essence practices, Mahamudra and Dzogchen in short. And since 2014, he's been actively teaching Mahamudra retreats after an extensive amount of training. And during the last decade, John's also developed and taught a non-dual approach to awakening, which he calls embodying the open ground. And that integrates non-dual Buddhist psychology, somatics, and psychodynamic attachment work. So I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. It's a great show. I think you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's dive in. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on here. Thank you, Morgan. Um, Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. And everybody, I've known John, I think we met, you know, it was probably about 15 years ago. 15 years ago, yeah. That's yeah, right. something like the early 2000s. And John and I haven't talked in a long time, but it occurred to me, John's right in my backyard. We live very close to each other, and he is a really accomplished and profound meditation teacher, and I wanted to invite him onto the show to share a little bit about his story. So, John, I think we should just start at the beginning, and mm-hmm. I'd love to just ask you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your own journey towards becoming a meditation teacher, instructor, whatever word you, you mm. want to use, but spiritual teacher, how, how did, how did, how did this, wh- how what did was this the happen? genesis? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, happen? it's an unusual context. Oh, um, this is fun. I get to tell my story. So, you know, as a, as a young kid, I remember whenever I was in a library, I'd always be looking at this, the sections with a kind of, you know, anomalous Reader's Digest book on anomalous yeah. things. And I was just very curious about um, what it meant to be a human being. Hmm. And by the time I was an adolescent, I, I was blessed because I had a, a grandmother who was interested in meditation and she'd mm. been a, a student of Carl Jung's and um, wow. so I grew up with some support and, and interest in that and then on my father's side so that was my mother's side of the family my father's side of the family they were all in India in the military and mm. so going to my grandmother's house hundreds of books on India and I remember must have been 12 years old, and finding some obscure book on yoga and meditation. Mm. And just knowing that this is what I was going to do with my life. I, wow. I, I had, But I had no idea what it was. It was just 
you know, a sense of this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. This was in the UK? In the UK. That's right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I had a very British up, upbringing sent away to boarding school when I was seven. Mm. So, oh, I, wow. Yeah. I've had the whole, the whole British experience. Yes. And I think things really came to a head sitting on my bed. I must have been 16 or 17. And I was reading a, a copy of the Upanishads, which is like the, the Vedic texts, early texts on meditation. And um, I guess as I was reading these texts, it all just started to happen and my mind started to open up and I mm. had a, I guess you could so some kind of awakening. And I mean, obviously that was enough to cause major confusion in the adolescent mind. Yeah. And, um, you know, that led to a real curiosity and drive and maybe obsession to understand more. So I left, mm. I left high school and I kind of read for a year. Um, your parents were cool with that? Well, they had to be cool with it. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and went back to school. When I finished high school, I went to study in a Tibetan monastery in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was really hoping to be trained um, in the, you know, the psychology and the practice that I was so interested in. And after about a year and a half, realized that um, the Tibetan monastic institutions are just, they're slow creatures. And mm. um, as with any traditional structure, that wasn't going to, that wasn't, that didn't sit well with a part of me that was a modern young man. Right. And, uh, and I also recognized and could see, you know, uh, friends and practitioners who had been in meditation, some of it had been in retreat for three years or six years or even 12 years and noticing some psychological things. And I'm like, interesting, this meditation, or at least how it is being taught right now, isn't addressing certain things. Mm. And, um, can you give an example of what that might, what that was? Well, relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah. Human yeah. relationship. And the complexities of being an, an integrated self. Mm. Yeah. And also, um, I think I'm really interested to see what happens when we live these realizations. How does that change how we organize our lives and how we relate to one another? And frankly, I didn't, I still don't believe that ancient monastic organization is the way that the evolution of consciousness wants to relate to itself. Mm. So there was also part of me that was like, I want to see how this looks like in the modern world. Like what's, what's the next thing? How is this going to evolve? Right. Um, so I, I then left the monastery and I came to the United States and I went to Naropa, the Buddhist university in mm -hmm. Colorado. Mm -hmm. and studied um, contemplative psychology and also did a lot of work with um, somatic body work, um, 
studied uh, Chinese medicine. And at that time also became involved with the Integral Institute. Mm -hmm. I had, um, to go back when, uh, go back at the story a little bit. One of the books that I was also really into when I was like 16 or 17, which I couldldn't understand a word of really. Mm. Um, but I was just like, this is, um, you know, I, I really want to understand this. It was a book written by uh, Ken Wilber and Jack Angler and Daniel Brown on transformations of consciousness. Mm. And, um, so Ken live, lives, lives in Colorado and I kind of got to hang out with, um, what was going on at the time, which was uh, the creation of a, oh, this is around the early 2000s of, a, of an institute that was really looking into how do we integrate you know, this un these understandings of the, the human mind into culture and into organizations and medicine and, and all those kinds of things. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was in... Um, that was an exciting, that must have been exciting. That was a very exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was still practicing, you know, I, I, I was continuing my practice. So the practice side of it was, you know, having had training in a monastery and then continuing to sit and just, you know, continuing to deepen my practice and also explore uh, different traditions. So I, I definitely took time to investigate some of the teachings of uh, the Advaita traditions and the mm -hmm. Zen tradition and some of the more traditional Theravada practices. So the time in, in Boulder was just being, I mean, I came to the States because obviously in England, the, the, the minority of people that are interested in these things is, is, you know, if it's, if it's 5% of the population, that 5% is small. Right. In the States, the 5% is, is a big 5%. Yeah, that's right. So we, you know, I came to Boulder and they had this huge smorgasbord of spiritual materialism. I was like, mm. this is just great. Yeah. You know, so I can go to massage school, go to acupuncture school. <laughs> Wow! And do all kinds of trainings, you know, roll around the floor in a roper and groan and moan and get in touch with my viscera, <laughs> uh, you know. And um, yeah. it was it was also really healing just in, as a Brit getting out of the UK and kind of experiencing the best of American postmodern spiritual psychotherapeutic culture. Mm. And uh, a yeah. quick question here: so yeah. when you said you were practicing, you had a kind of consistent practice during this time. You, you were talking about you, you were meditating consistently. Yeah. About an hour a day. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So just, I think I got to that point where I'm just like, well, this is my lifelong practice. Yeah. So I'm just going to do this. And there were time, you know, phases and times where, um, you don't know you don't know what's happening, but you just I just kept showing up on the cushion and and uh, you know it became it was the center of my life. It was the, the mm -hmm. still point inside of all of the exploration was was the practice. Yeah. So there was the time in in Boulder, which was a really creative time, and there, that's where I went. I met my um, my wife and partner Nicole, and she was mm. also a lifelong meditator and. Uh, Ken Wilbur enthusiast and um, and then we eventually left Boulder because it was a little bit of a bubble and I was and I was we both were 
interested to see what the outside world looked like. You know, there were the places where we were needed. So we came to Massachusetts because we thought, well, you know, we can bring these teachings and to a different population. And, mm. and um, at that point, I actually I connected. So I connected with Ken Wilbur in Boulder, and then I I actually ran into Dan Brown here in in Boston. So it was mm. one of those comic synchronicities. Yes, and just to remind everyone who's listening, those were two of the three authors that John mentioned of uh, of this influential book that he read when he was sixteen. Yeah, so these were, you know, so Dan um, is a psychologist, a great psychologist, and mm. also um, had just happened to publish a book on Mahamudra. Mm. This was 2005, called um, Pointing Out the Great Way. And, you know, I had been studying Mahamudra in the Tibetan monastery. Mm-hmm. And um, I had also recognized that my teachers were going to be Western, you know, right? Like that. Um, there was, I was gonna. I had a sense I was going to find the the teachers who had studied with the Tibetans or the Indians. That you know, my job was to you know find those who had made that translation and not try and make that translation myself. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I just realized that that was not my not my job, right? You know, there's different. I mean, the the, the Dharma coming to the um, to the West is a big endeavor, yeah. And different and different generations, we have different functions. Mm. And um, you know, generations of Ken and Dan, you know, that was a is a certain kind of hard work that need, that needed to happen and translation of of teachings from their original you know, tibetan into um a language and a way of understanding that's western mm-hmm. and you know i felt like well my job was to kind of receive those and then work with those rather than try and uh, you, you can't do everything right, right? exactly yeah you just can't it's so I, that's when uh, I started studying and with Dan. I became his uh, mentee and apprentic- yeah. apprenticing with him. And during that time, I went through acupuncture school and I practiced uh, acupuncture and Chinese medicine for about a decade. I was mm-hmm. you know, part of that was just motivated by really wanting to understand the me- the medicine of the east because if you want to understand the psychology the psychology is always related to the medicine mm. you know it's that they're, they're kind of that they're, they're the inside and the outside mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm really glad i did that because i think that if you just know the psychology and you don't know the the medicine then it's like knowing the mind and not knowing the body right and in order for um in order to have a really good sense of um, of wholeness, and also ha- how to have a sense of how practice needs to be or can be um, individualized, so that it also synchronizes with your physical health and well-being. So, if you really want to individualize a practice, you you need to know those things mm-hmm. because different practices affect the energy body and the organs in different ways. 
when you say individualize a practice, what does that mean? Well, to some extent, meditation has a deep structure. Yeah. So, you know, let's take, for example, calm staying practice, which is basically also known as shamatha practice or concentration practice, which is essentially, you know, learning the skills to develop the ability to have the mind stay on what you want it to have it stay on and to calm the events in your mind. So you can you could do calm staying practice on any number of objects. So you could use the breath, you could use the body, you could use a mantra, you could look at a visual object, right? You could you can do any number of, you can use any number of of objects and often what happens is people get confuse the object for the practice. The practice is calm staying. Mm. And the calm staying is using an object. A meditation object. Now, right. that meditation object is going to have an effect, a, a different kind of energetic effect. So if you're doing a mantra as opposed to following your breath, or if you're concentrating on the felt sense of the body as opposed to concentrating on your hara, all of those are different concentration objects, and they'll do something differently. Different, mm. right? To your... And whilst on one hand, what you're learning is to have your mind stay, you know, and you're developing the ability to quieten thought, mm -hmm. the side effect is, is whatever object you're using is going to have an energetic side effect. Mm. You know, if you're concentrating on your heart, you're the side effect is going to be a, a sense of love and openness. And if you concentrate on the belly, the side effect is you're going to strengthen the the hara, the water element, and strengthen your immune system. If you concentrate on the on a visual object, like looking at something, staring at something, you're going to raise all the energy up. Yes, your dog agrees. She does. That's right. <laughs> so, so it, you know, traditionally, the you know one of the things that a teacher would do is aside from you know understanding the. The, the deep structure of meditation, yeah. it would be to also individualize it. Now, you know, one of the challenges is, is we teach one of the ways, it's like yoga. We teach yoga in groups these days, so it's not individualized. Mm -hmm. So we also teach meditation often in groups. I mean, that's mm -hmm. because that's the way, if you're really going to give, uh, you know, instruction, group is where most people are going to learn. And you, yeah. and you can't, in a group, have everybody doing their own thing. Right. Because, well, you can, but that's like an orchestra. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, right, that, right. And that, you know, and when, you, when you're first teaching people to play, you probably teach everybody. I mean, when you first go learn music, everyone loves the recorder. Yeah. And then the piano. And then maybe after, t maybe it becomes more individual. So if you're teaching people basic principles in a group, it's much better to have everybody work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got to let this little have everybody practice the same, the same instrument. Yeah, and that way you can talk in generalizations, and and you can, you know, people can, you can give the instruction, and everyone can follow. Yeah, but it's also true that at some point we might want to individualize it so that it really is. Um, 
synchronized with what's going on with you and your life and your body and your emotions and yeah but obviously that takes a relationship yeah right and um you know having somebody know know who you are in an intimate way um which was much more of a traditional teacher student relationship mm. yeah no it's that's fascinating obviously the context in which I practiced in my community for 14 years. It was all collective. It was all always the same practice. We didn't really have much of that. The individualized context would be much more like, you know, there would be some reflective context related to the shadow, I think, and and dealing with ego. But in terms of individualized meditation practice, that it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And, and, something i don't have that much experience with but it makes makes a lot of sense and and it's also good to have practices when you come together where you all do the same thing because it generates yeah. power yeah i mean the individualization in some ways is just the surface feature because the truth is is the deep structure of the levels of awareness is the same the same the the, the deep structure is universal so yeah a, a well-trained teacher can essentially you know div- individualize a practice that might on the outside look very, very different for different students, but they're going to traverse through the same stages of, of mind, but perhaps just with a different color, different, different tone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's not, it's not completely unique. The deep structure is, is the same. It's just working with the temp, you know, someone's genius rather than, their their weakness right yeah that makes sense so you were going on a thread when i asked you this question about individualizing and it was and 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 now might be a good time for us to shift into talking a little bit about mahamudra Mm. which is one of your as i understand correct me if i'm wrong here it's one of your main focus points in your teaching mm-hmm. and what you've studied with Dan Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my, I'd be interested in beginning to open that up a little bit so you can share with our audience a little bit. Really, the, the fundamental question I have is really, again, starting at the beginning, what is Mahamudra? It's mm-hmm. a good question, I know. Right, right. But, um, and then before we, before we make the transition, was there anything else you wanted to say, like I, in terms of your own story, like, what one thing that it was interesting to me leaving Naropa and and you said what you had wanted to bring these teachings to you know other places where there wasn't this sort of cornucopia as you mm-hmm. described of, of of you know where you just it was all accessible and you know it was a, mm-hmm. it was a feast. I guess the question that came up for me listening to you talk about that and before you came to Massachusetts or when you came, to, did you have a vision for? how you saw this unfolding, what you wanted to do, how how you saw yourself integrating all of this and then, you know, bringing it into what would become Samadhi, your yoga and practice center and the various extensions of that. Like, how, how did that? Well, that's, I mean, that, that's a, that's a whole other discussion. Um, you know, the, the, the Dharma is a seed of culture. Mm-hmm. And it isn't just meditation. It involves 
within it is the 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 deep archetype of the possibility of enlightened human culture yes and if you and so yeah. you know whatever it, whatever the things whatever it is i was doing was just part of my mission of okay you know we've landed yeah in this land of barbarians Yes, and <laughs> you know it's a very British I, perspective, and I, I've always felt like I was, you know, a little bit like I was kind of part of that dharma, you know, dharma army, so to speak. Okay, you land, yeah. and you and you have to start infiltrating. Yes, right, and it's going to take us a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years, and um, let's start trying to understand how this culture works because it's mm. um, extremely driven, it's extremely aggressive. So it was that that kind of motivation for this this larger view of uh, enlightened culture, which is yeah. which is what we all want. We all want a world of justice and and love and education and sustainability. Um, mm. So that was the motivation. You know? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I mean, I think that in, in the Tibetan tradition, the training of what they call bodhicitta, and we'll get into this with with Mahamudra, the training of bodhicitta, which basically translates as uh, awakening mind. Awakening mind has two aspects. There's the absolute aspect, which is about understanding the the nature of Buddha mind, the nature of of your true being mm -hmm. and then the relative side of bodhicitta is the um the side of evolving in time mm -hmm. and motivated by compassion to understand the psychology the culture the sciences of the time in order to harness those to building a you know a a a world that is organized around compassion and um, healing, mm, and kind of heaven and earth, heaven and earth, right? And those two principles, they you know you you have to train in both of them. Yeah, so you have to train in understanding what's relevant right now, right? because the world is changing, and the relative side of experience changes, and so you you train in that. And then you train in the part of experience that doesn't train, doesn't change rather. And there's that creative place where time and timeless come together. Mm. So that's the motivation was I see social action and as much uh, it's, it's, it's as much as part of the practice as meditation is. In fact, they're, yeah. they're inseparable. Yeah. Yeah. So that, well, that, that's fantastic. And was Bodhicitta, was that, something that you were introduced to when you were in the Tibetan monastery, that whole vision? That's right, yeah. Got it, cool. So let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about Mahamudra and put it in the yes. context of Buddhism. So, you know, Buddhism talks about three wheels and three three phases. And you can think of this as three, like any science goes through th paradigm shifts. Mm -hmm. And, the you know, the foundation of Buddhist practice is about coming to understand the nature of suffering and the nature of happiness. And so the first turning of the wheel is really focusing on coming to understand the causes of suffering and the causes of reactivity. Mm. 
and the causes of happiness through understanding cause and effect. Hmm. So from a psychological point of view, it's using what we would call formal operational thinking, meaning using rational thought. If you, if you had rational thought 2,500 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, or however long it was, that, that was pretty, you were pretty evolved at that point in time. And yeah. so you were using your rational mind to understand, wow, there's things that I do with my mind that make it worse, and there's things that I do that make it better. And if I reduce the things that make it worse and increase the things that make it better, lo and behold, because of cause and effect, things improve, and the fruition of that is what they would call nirvana or the extinction of all the ne- of all the the negative. Mm-hmm. And so that that model of alleviating reactivity, which all practice needs to be grounded in that, because otherwise, even if we're interested in higher states, if it's not connected with our humanity it's not really relevant, right? It's, right. it's a, a distraction. Right. And then the next turning of the wheel of, of practice is around, um, well, let me just go back to that. First turning of the wheel is really about understanding suffering, uh, which is related to re- reactivity, mm-hmm. impermanence, and this idea of no self. And these were the fundamental insights. So when you talk about insight meditation, in the first turning, it's insight into reactivity, insight into no self, insight into impermanence. Hmm. And now the second turning of the wheel, what was called the Mahayana, it reframes that and looks at the whole path rather in in terms of seeing the problem as being reactivity, they see the problem as being reification. Hmm. Reification means making things real. Mm -hmm. So basically this is addressing suffering through a system's perspective looking at looking rather than looking at just in terms of cause and effect which is that works that's you know that works very well but that doesn't that doesn't see how everything is interconnected in in a much deeper weave and web so the mahayana and the hallmark of the mahayana is compassion and and emptiness Mm. emptiness is referring to the to the the lack of self-existence which means that Essentially, everything is interconnected in a very deep weave, Hmm. right? So this is your ecology. This is your systems thinking. And this is why the Mahayana is about a social vehicle because it realizes the interiors and exteriors are all woven together. Yes. And that the suffering and, and, you know, human poverty and suffering on the other side of the the planet affects, it affects us and, and our realization affects what goes on you know, the other side of the world. Mm. And that level of practice is, um, in practice, the, the hallmark of Mahayana was Nagarjuna's discovery that time was empty. So by time being empty, meaning that there is no such thing as impermanence because impermanence is based on a construct that time exists. So essentially, Mahayana is looking at a deeper construct in the mind mm-hmm. and understanding that when we were children, time was something that was actually constructed psychologically. Mm. Wow, fascinating. So when, right, so when you and I were infants, we didn't experience time. And then slowly over a period of years, we slowly constructed the idea of time. 
until you know it i mean for some of us we're still struggling with it but i mean my kids are, they they begin to have a sense of months and years but it takes a it takes years to understand time yeah and the earlier buddhism packaged the practice inside the idea of time mm. so time was a construct that they didn't investigate and the mahayana investigated time and and as such recognized that time was a construct and then opened up a particular level of mind and experience where awareness is seen as timeless mm. because it's timeless it exists always already past present and future and that opens up the 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 view of the mahayana which is this view of all beings you know may all beings in all realms of past present and future that vision is a, is a, it's a much larger vision than the vision of the first turning which is you know let's take care of our own you know, personal suffering yeah fear and desire yeah i mean that's great i mean we we in fact we we all you know the journey should include all of these it's not mm. like you just leave them behind it has to be grounded in understanding cause and effect mm. Like the great master Padmasambhava would say, you know, my view is as vast as the sky, but my conduct is as fine as flour. Mm. Any cause and effect is real. Yeah, and suffering is real, and causes people pain at the level that you know that we live at. So, no matter how big the view or how expansive the teaching, it has to be integrated back into recognizing cause and effect as well hmm. so that's the mahayana view so so the teachings like zen chan are kind of mahayana teachings and, and the the hallmark of it is this sense of opening to this level of awareness that saturates all time and space and from that place you sense the intimacy of all beings and therefore compassion becomes your modus operandi because if you're connected to all beings and you feel that it's going to mean something. Mm. So compassion, when the Dalai Lama is talking about compassion, he's meaning, it's like a technical term. It means this, this experience of deep weave with all beings that comes from a level of awareness that transcends time. Right. It doesn't, nice. just, it doesn't just mean feeling empathy for people. Yeah. Right, so that's the Mahayana. And then the third turning and I'm sorry to be all kind of college professory, but you know, there's this context with these. Yeah, things. no, it's helpful. It's important. And the, the third teaching was the teaching on Buddha nature, which was essentially the understanding that suffering was caused by not recognizing true nature, that, that there was actually this true nature, this mm -hmm. Buddha nature that has its own intelligence it's in fact it's the intelligence of the whole cosmos and our disconnection from that true nature begins the cycle of samsara that causes reification that then leads to the reactivity mm. So these teachings are interrelated in the sense that if you lose contact with true nature, then you begin to reify, reify things. That's when you need 
emptiness practice. And if you continue to reify things, then you become then things become reactive, and that's when you need mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the teachings on Buddha nature, which were the flowering of Buddhism in India, in the um, Ma- Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and the um, and the tantras. Mm. So, the tradition in India, before India was wiped out, you know, the flowering of Indian Buddhism in monasteries like Nalanda, mm-hmm. you know, the first the first university in the world. In order to get entrance to Nalanda, you had to pass the entrance examination, which was the um, examination of the first turning. So you had to know cause and effect. And in fact, above the doorway of Nalanda was basically, it said, the only thing that's taught here is cause and effect. Hmm. And so you had, to, you had to know mindful, you know, I guess the equivalent today would be you had to know mindfulness-based stress reduction. You had to know about reducing reactivity in order then to get access to the university where you would then study the Mahayana and hmm. the Buddha natures school and mahamudra was one of the styles of practice that evolved out of this understanding of buddha nature mm. so that's a little bit about context because yeah it's important because you know when i work with my students i like to include the first turning and the second turning mm-hmm. you don't want to just transcend you need to include those understandings because otherwise what happens is you can open up to really the, the deep nature of true being, but then maybe leave the body behind. Right. And leave behind your trauma because, um, you know, reactivity uh, at the kind of... At the first the trauma, trauma, trauma. Got right, it. Right, trauma. Reactivity is basically confusion. Confusion, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, is caused by, um, you know, the mind becomes conditioned and it becomes conditioned because of trauma. And that trauma is epigenetic that trauma is we inherit it from generations of generations of confusion yeah so when you're born you're born you know sperm and egg come together but within that is not only all the gifts of our ancestors but all the confusion and the trauma that they they didn't process Mm. and that's why from the buddhist tradition when they say you know the mind has been like this since beginningless time it's because we're having to, you and I have to work through those patterns of reactivity that mm. our ancestors struggled with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's important to ground our practice, you know, in you know, those more fundamental turnings of, of, of practice and understanding first before you climb higher up the ladder, mm. so to speak. Yeah. But if we're going to talk on, on Mahamudra, so Mahamudra really addresses the recognition of what we would call Buddha nature. Mm. Um, Buddha nature would be our the essence of what it means to be a human being. And uh, we can give words to that, but obviously words are you know, pointing at something. But the... Buddha nature would be the experience of an un of unbounded awareness love. Unbounded awareness love that 
saturates all time and space and holds all beings within it like a mother holds a child. Mm. And that true nature is also dynamic in its intelligence and it expresses itself as the, the world that we see around us. So there's nothing outside of it. You know, the Buddha nature schools are non-dual, meaning mm. true nature is as much outside of you as it is inside of you. In fact, there is no inside and outside. And, you know, the Mahamudra addresses practice through shifting levels of awareness. Mm. The way I describe this is if, if true nature is like a vast ocean and you take um, a bathtub and you you sink a bathtub into the vast ocean and then you sink a bucket into that bathtub and then you sink a cup into that bucket. The water is floating through all of those um, containers, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the water is awareness. So you know, an, an average person will say, I'm aware, it's, it's water. But that's water inside of the cup. So when you first do mindfulness practice and you you know you you calm the mind down and, and the mind stops thinking and you become aware and you're like, aha, this is awareness. Okay. However, that awareness is packaged in a structure. And that structure is the self. So you might not recognize it's packaged in that. That's what the emptiness practices address. So you do the mm -hmm. emptiness practice that addresses the emptiness of self, and the self-structure becomes open. And now you recognize, oh, this awareness, it transcends the self and it includes the self. So now the little fish can swim in the cup and it can swim into the bucket. But mm -hmm. what the little fish doesn't realize is, is it's a bucket and it's the bucket of time. So if you understand how to look into the nature of time and you see that as a construction, now suddenly the bucket becomes porous or, or mm. transparent and now the little fishy can swim around the bathtub. Mm. Now, each of these, it's been water the whole way through. Right, so... This is the thing about the essence traditions. The essence traditions look at look at the essence of awareness. So it's it 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 appears that it's been awareness every single stage, and yet at each stage of practice, that awareness becomes more open, deeper, yeah. vaster. Yeah, yeah. And then you know the last bucket is the bucket of individuality, I mean, the bucket of a sense of witness, the sense of I itself which is different from the self you know, and that also includes the sense of subject and object so then when that bucket when that bathtub becomes open now you have the, the vista of the vast open ocean within which is a sense of individuality the bathtub within which is a sense of time and within which is a sense of self hmm. so all these structures are nested and the idea being is in integrated Mahamudra practice, you wouldn't necessarily be able to recognize that somebody was operating from a basis of operation of being the ocean because they're still going to be talking and walking and, and relating. Right. It's, it's all integrated. Right.
you know, and the meditation practice itself is really a practice for then taking the, the realization off the cushion and living it. Mm. So the emphasis in Mahamudra is non-meditation. Non-meditation essentially is that the, the view or the basis of operation becomes stable, that you're just, that's where you're, op you're operating from that place. Mm. You're in meditation. It might not be concentration meditation, right? So, I mean, this is where, I mean, I say to my students, look, me meditation is a term like sports. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> sports, yeah. right? So this is why, you know, the Tibetans are like, yes, so sports is a big subject. Over here, we have tiddlywinks, and over here, we have dirt bike racing, and over here, we have, you know, um, hang gliding, and we have hockey, and we have football, and we have soccer. It's such a world of practice. Yeah. So there are practices that might, you know, that you could say, well, that's a very deep meditation, and the person goes into a very deep state, state of absorption. But if that state of absorption can't be maintained in walking around, then obviously it's not true nature because true nature is always right here so it might be deep it might be a deep state mm. but it isn't true nature mm. um, I mean, and, and maybe you know i don't know if you make these distinctions with um you know with folks who listen to the podcast but within the tibetan tradition that's really important because they have just a, a, a plethora of meditation techniques i mean a hundred thousand volumes in their library I mean, you, you know, you <laughs> yeah. no, no. These are fi de definitely finer distinctions than probably a lot of the audience is exposed to, but important nevertheless. To kind of, uh, so much of this podcast is about being exposed to all these different schools of practice. Mm -hmm. So it is really good to talk about it. So that's a little. I mean, did that give you a little bit of sense of yeah, well, at least the theory behind Mahamudra? Yeah. And, yeah. and so one kind of range of questions. Yeah. One question, are you are you individualizing the practice with them? That's one question I have. Number two, why do people come to you? And do they do they come to you to learn meditation or do they come to you in a in a larger context and then you say you need to meditate? Or and then I know you also are giving retreats and that's is that the primary context in which you're teaching mm -hmm. meditation so the lot you know the larger lineage that i i teach within is um a rime so it's a non-sectarian lineage mm -hmm. um under the direction of my mentor dr dr dan and yeah. rime so the pointing out way is a contemporary tradition of practice that integrates the um, to Indo-Tibetan essence traditions. So Mahamudra is like the one of it's the first two stages of practice in a um, in a larger curriculum, mm -hmm. um, which includes what's called Dzogchen, which is um, the sister tradition to Mahamudra. Mm. And often in Tibet, Mahamudra teachers and Dzogchen teachers would study with one another. Um, mm. So, you know, people are coming to study with me 
primarily because they are interested in um, in the great work. You know, they they're interested in practicing meditation as a as a path to to awakening and, and enlightenment just as they might in tibet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know we have um you know we've, we're very blessed in our in terms of our population of students because we get a lot of students we get students who are really interested yeah and the the doorway into practice is a seven-day retreat so mm. in that seven day, you, you learn Mahamudra, you get exposed to the curriculum Mahamudra for the first time. And often people should repeat that curriculum and learn that curriculum for the first I don't know, five years of practice until you really master all the stages of meditation. So then once they've, um, you know, they've taken this, this level one retreat, then they're invited to work with a personal teacher. And so at that point, then students will reach out to me. Sometimes they reach out to me beforehand because they can't go to a retreat just yet, but they want to start practice with mm-hmm. with that goal in mind. And then I start working one-on-one with them. So we've already done a week of really intensive work together, and they've had exposure to, to a whole curriculum of practice. Mm-hmm. And then essentially I pick them up where they've fallen because we take them through every single stage of meditation. And then depending upon your capacity, you're going to kind of rest at a particular point. Mm. And then it's so, you know, we work out, okay, what is it you understand? What do you not understand? And then that's why that's when the instructions become individualized. Mm. You know, and we can then break it down to really small pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the great thing about the, the Tibetan tradition is they really, I think they really understood pedagogy. They really understood state, you know, how to break the journey down into little bitty stages. Yeah. And if you understand, you know, if you understand where you're at, if you understand there's a map and it's a very distinct map, it's been Mm. walked for a thousand years by hundreds and thousands of women and men. It's been well worked out. Mm. There is a psychology. It's not mysticism. It's science. You know, um, yeah. And then if you know where you're at, and then you know what you need to work on, then you just work at that piece. And if you if you work at it, it will unfold. That's inevitable, as you well know, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you put your time in, practice unfolds. Absolutely. In the pointing out way, how does your psychological training and practice come into play? if at all, when, when you're working with your students? Well, I mean, I think we have to, in some ways, separate, separate, but keep, but, but keep them together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there are some, I mean, in some ways, I'm not going to, I, I'm going to bear this, I'm going to be considering the, psycholo- the psychological. Yeah. But I might not necessarily be sharing that with my student. Got it. Because it's, if you do that, it's easy for them to start getting caught up in the content of, right, the content of the psyche, you know? Yes. So, for instance, if I notice that there's a sense of, of underlying insecurity and doubt, mm-hmm. which most people have to some extent, mm-hmm. then I might have a sense that there, that there might be an attachment issue going on. 
-hmm. attachment is is like the early in the very early the earliest structure of the infant bonding to a caregiver that, that basically essentially begins the process of structural development so if if that is not stable then the the side effects of insecure attachment is basically a background sense of doubt inability to organize the nervous system and low self-esteem and a lack of sense of strong sense of self strong sense mm. of direction mm. yeah so if i notice that that might be going on then i will use then i'll kind of suggest deity practices so visualization practices which are essentially the same thing that i would would suggest with somebody in psychotherapy you you know visualizing an ideal parent and bonding to a parent learning how to generate the affect of deep connection with mm. a visualized figure because the the internal structures of the mind of that that are built around attachment what more matters more is how they live in your mind not how not necessarily the relationship so what what that means is if you help someone able to visualize their relationship with a ideal parent you can yeah you'll activate the attachment system and yeah and you're saying that that in a way that's absolutely necessary for the psyche it's it's the it's the foundation yeah it's the and if you have no it's, it's the foundation which is why the tibetans emphasized what they would call guru yoga or mental bonding which is essentially a deity practice you know mm. visualizing the teacher or a deity as like the good parent yeah and that's vital because it it creates the sense of self needs to organize around that mm. but at a at the deepest level if your true nature is always right here right yeah everything that's stopping you from recognizing that is a form of distrust mm. so in the tibetan tradition they talk about true nature as being the union of the mother consciousness and the infant so the union of the infant and the mother if you don't trust the mother because you didn't trust your mother then that gets overlaid on top of the mother so mm. the mother with a big m and the mother with a small m which means that our experience of not being fully parented or cared for or nurtured and our defenses against that kind of injury make it very difficult for us to rest into true nature mm. because we have a background sense of distrust that we're not aware of right and that distrust keeps the mind seeking for something searching scanning and it's the scanning and the searching for something that stops us from recognizing what's always already right here mm so attachment is vital at the beginning of the development of the self and paradoxically it's also vital at the end in terms of the being able to release the self mm. you know because if we if you and i feel and if we all feel deeply safe and held then it's easy to relax our minds mm right and all the research indicates that you know mindfulness meditation activates the attachment circuitry because mm. what you're doing when you're when you're just tending to the sensations of your body 
and noticing the reactivity and you're staying there is you're basically doing for yourself what should have been done for you when you were young. Right. So you're basically mothering yourself. Yes. So that's, the, that's at the basic level. So at the basic level of mindfulness is a form of attachment. Huh. Right, because that's what you're, yeah. you're doing it. Now then if you superpower that by also visualizing and being overtly, like knowing that that's what you're doing, really making sure that the mindfulness is relational. So really relating to your own suffering like a mother relates to a child. You know, visualizing a being in front of you that represents, you know, the good mother, the good father, Tara, medicine Buddha, you know, the archetype of the, the healing mentor. And then, you know, feeling deeply safe, you know, imagining and sensing that safety and that attunement, what it feels like to be deeply seen and deeply felt and deeply known and deeply valued. And then bringing that into you and then internalizing that and then becoming that being, you know, that is the really, you know, that's a really strong foundation then for practice because mm. there's going to be your sense of everything is okay is going to be that much stronger. So the practice is going to be that much easier. Mm. So that would be one example. You know, I might not even mention that to the student that that's what, you know, that th that's the reason, but I'm adapting the practices to make sure that they address what I'm seeing in the student. Yeah. Yeah. And totally all, makes you know, sense. And all these are traditional practices, right? So yeah. I, I mean, I think that they, they knew about these things. They, they might not have. Yeah. 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 Or intuited them. It, it, right. That's right. Well, that, yeah, that's fascinating. It's very, it's illuminating to hear you talk about the conjoined practice like that and how that, that sort of interpenetrating kind of approach. I love it. It's, it's very compelling. So John, I think we've kind of come to the end of the hour here mm. and it went by really fast. So yeah. I found this completely fascinating and, and I'm, I think my audience is going to get a lot out of this. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. Mm. Well, thank you, Morgan. I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, I'm just grateful that I'm able to you know, offer these teachings that have been given to me. So thank you for that opportunity. Definitely. And so if people want, to say learn about your retreats or f learn more about what you do how can people be in touch how can they learn more about your work i would direct them to two websites my personal website is samadhiintegral.com so that would be my own personal mm -hmm. website where for um my wife nicole and i and you know they can email me if they want to contact me if they um, my my retreats are on the website and then if they go to pointingoutway.org you can get a sense of um you know the larger tradition and there's some videos on there and stuff like that great okay everyone i will link up to those two websites in the show notes and um fantastic i if if you're turned on by what we talked about i really encourage you to follow up with john and uh super john thank you thank you morgan take care you too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the One Mind Meditation Podcast. And again, I just want to make one last plug. If you're interested in John's work, please head over 
to our website at aboutmeditation.com. I've linked up his website in the show notes for this episode. Also, if you want to support the show, probably the best way you could do that is to leave us a rating and a review in iTunes. That's the best way to help other people find our show. It's super helpful to us. And yeah, I think that's about it. I want to make a quick plug. If you are interested in meditation and we want to start a practice, we have several courses on our website over at aboutmeditation.com. I encourage you to head on over there and check it out under the Courses tab on the website. And if you haven't been to our site in a while, we recently redesigned it. It's really beautiful, very kind of spare and open. It's got an awesome meditative vibe to it. So please check it out. Let me know what you think. Write to me at morgandix at gmail.com or just leave a comment on the site or use the contact form. And yeah, that's it for today. And so we're going to end with a quote. And today's quote is from my favorite source of quotes, the Rigpa Glimpse of the Day. And this one reads, According to Dzogchen, The entire range of all possible appearances and all possible phenomena in all the different realities, whether samsara or nirvana, all of these, without exception, have always been and will always be perfect and complete within the vast and boundless expanse of the nature of mind. Yet, even though the essence of everything is empty and pure from the very beginning, Its nature is rich in noble qualities, pregnant with every possibility, a limitless, incessantly and dynamically creative field that is always spontaneously perfect.